Welcome, listeners, to Fatal Error. I'm Chris Zomback. And I'm Saroosh Kanlu. And uh, today we're going to talk about migrating from Swift 2 to Swift 3. Uh, before we dig into the episode, I wanted to thank all of you who are supporting us on Patreon. This is uh, our first private episode, our first Patreon-only episode. And uh, just want to say again that your support uh, really does mean a lot to us. We've been very surprised by the uh, level of support that we've gotten so far, just in the past week or so. Yeah, one of the things I, that I've wanted to say for a while is that uh, I really like the fact that it means we can continue to be ad-free, but I don't know if this is the right venue to say it. Um, so what I will say is the outpouring of support, we haven't even we hadn't even posted a single uh, private episode until this one, and we, we've gotten plenty of, of people already subscribing, plenty of people that subscribe to Patreon just to support us, and it really, it really, really means a lot, and it means that we can keep doing this show and we can keep making this show awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So that being said, let's uh, let's talk about migrating from Swift 2 to Swift 3. So this is something that we've been doing at work recently uh, over the past couple of weeks. Sarush, is this something that you've gone through before? Have you been writing Swift 3? Have you migrated an app from Swift 2 to 3? So I was in a, a very interesting place. Uh, so b- before we dig in, I think we should say that... Uh, the reason that this is a big deal, some silver listeners might not be writing Swift yet. The reason that this is a big deal is that Swift uh, 2.2 was the you know last version that was supported on the last Xcode. Swift 2.3 is supported on this version of Xcode, which is a couple of minor, minor changes. And then Swift 3 is like a ton of changes that you have to make to make sure that your app continues to compile. So uh, when you upgrade Xcode, you do have to do the, the small shift over to 2.3. But you don't. You didn't have to do the 2.3 to 3.0 jump, and they 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 said that Xcode 8.2 is going to be the last Xcode that supports Swift 2.3, and so that kind of lit a fire under everybody and made everybody realize we have to do the Swift 3 migration kind of now, because uh, the next version of Xcode that comes out, our app just won't compile it anymore. So. The clock is kind of ticking on that stuff. Everybody I know has either done it or is like, I got to find some time to squeeze this in. Uh, I was in a weird situation because I was switching clients at the exact time that the that the switch happened. So I, I left one client and then the, the next client was a brand new app. So we just started in Swift 3. Uh, which was which was really painless. Like we did have about a week of Swift 2.2 code that we had to migrate, but it was like maybe a thousand lines of code and it was really quite a quite a quick switch. I did do code review for a couple of teams that did the switch. I've helped those teams like solve bugs that were caused by the 2.3 to 3.0 switch, but I haven't done the entire migration myself except for a very, very tiny one, the thousand line one, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'd be curious to hear what some of the bugs that you were helping discover were, because uh, that seems like something that we could probably learn from. Yeah, it's a lot of really edge casey stuff. One of the things that changes is things like dates and NS data, NS date, NS data, things like that. They all move to be uh, value types instead of instead of, reference. of reference types, right? So, so there's like little subtle bugs that could be caused because of that. The one we were dealing with. Uh, one of them was because the description of NS data changed when it became data, and it used to print oh. out like a hex representation of itself, and a lot of apps rely on that to send that hex representation to the server. So when you got like a a, a token for uh, push notifications, you would just use like data description, and then send that to the server. 
it was kind of a lazy way of getting out of the fact that like you don't want to manually have to calculate this thing and description had it for you so why not i remember years ago at this point maybe two three four years ago reviewing some code that handled push notifications and someone had written that code that took uh like the data description just in order to get the hex value and uh i remember calling out this seems like this isn't necessarily great and this probably isn't the way to do this and now here for like years down the road it turns out that that i I was right i i think that we still ended up taking the shortcut back then but um that's good i will check our push notification code to be sure it does things correctly for sure when i wrote that code i wrote a test specifically that checks that that parsing works correctly and that test broke and that's how we knew that it was broken. Oh, nice. Uh, and I was kind of aware. I was like, you know what? This is the kind of thing that could change. Or we're relying on almost implicit behavior here. So let's just throw a test in here. And like that way, if it changes, it'll be immediately obvious. And it did change and it was obvious. And, and that's how we knew to fix it. But yeah, that's the kind of bug that could happen. And it could just, you know, secretly be in your code base. And you wouldn't know because you don't touch push notification code very often. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Once it's working, just That's just right. Leave just it. leave it. Don't touch it. <laughs> So, right, so that's one of the sort of, I don't know if I'd even call that a semantics breaking change, but it is a breaking change in the language. Right. What Swift 3 is sort of notorious for are a lot of uh, syntax breaking changes uh, and a lot of changes in how Objective-C APIs get imported into Swift. The rough rule that I've been seeing is about half of the lines of Swift in your code base will change. They don't change very much necessarily, but they will change. All the enums, now the first letter is lowercase, um, all of the collection APIs, like where you might have had object at index, it's now object and then in parentheses at. And so like little tiny changes like that all happen, but you'll end up with a big diff. I'm curious, so you guys just did yours. Right, so we've been working for the last uh, week and a half or so on migrating our in-progress application from Swift 2.3 to Swift 3. I think when you include tests and everything else, we're migrating around 25,000 lines of code, That's which a lot. is a lot. It's not the biggest Swift app out there by far, but it's it's a good amount of code to migrate. So maybe first we'll go over the strategy that we've taken for this. Last week was the week between Christmas and New Year's, so only a few of us were in the office. And so we started working out which of our dependencies needed to be, like still needed to be migrated to Swift 3. Uh, a number of internal dependencies that we had were written in Swift 2.3, and uh, there was one external dependency, which we ended up forking and migrating to Swift 3. Classic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in Swift so far, there's no uh, ABI, application binary interface compatibility. So all of your uh, frameworks that get linked into the application have to be built with the same Swift tool chain, which is something that the Swift team is aiming to solve Oh, somewhere down the road after they have hit source stability. My uh, understanding is that like syntax source code stability is, is the priority. Right. But, but someday you'll be able to take a Swift library and link it into your app without having to know that they were built with exactly the same Swift tool chain. Right, but that day is not today. That day is not today. So we spent a good amount of time last week on that, uh, on migrating dependencies, now, dependencies are something that obviously you can parallelize that conversion, uh, that migration between team members. You have each team member take a dependency, right? Right. New branch doesn't affect the old stuff, make mm -hmm. sure all the tests are passing. Right. So starting at the end of last week, uh, beginning of this week, one of our developers uh, really took on the bulk of the work in running the Swift migrator on our application itself. 
and um, at least getting it to compile and getting uh, most of the tests to pass. And that was something that took him uh, a couple, maybe two solid days of work, I would say, just getting it to a state where it's something that we could, again, split up areas of the app to have other people work on, review, and clean up. Right. So that's how we've gone about this so far. Uh, I guess we could talk about, well, if you have any questions so far, we can go over that. No, no questions so far. Okay. And then maybe I'll just go over some of the other stuff that we've noticed, which are other things that uh, either the compiler noticed, but we had to fix manually, or things that we noticed while reading diffs that you'll want to look for when migrating from Swift 2.3 to Swift 3. Uh, and some other stuff that is kind of in the same vein as your data description bug. That sounds like a good plan. I also have uh, a couple of small things that we ran into, although it's such a big thing that like, I think some of the things you ran into, we won't run into and, and vice versa. Sure. But I'm, I'm still interested to hear what those things are that y'all ran into. Yeah. And I'll note that we're not quite done with this. So it's possible that um, like, I will take your list of things that you ran into and yeah. uh, check our code base for them tomorrow. Um, yeah, I can, I can, I can give a couple of the things that we ran into. So I mentioned the data description one. That was a weird one. Another one is in Swift three optionals are no longer comparable by default, which is a really good change, but because the way it worked before is nil was always less than everything, no matter what the type was, which is just doesn't really make any sense. So they removed that. But if you do rely on that behavior, the migrator will actually add an extra optional comparison operator for you in that file and make it like file private. And then you have to, you can either like dedupe it and make there just be one optional comparison operator and slowly remove them all uh, over time. Or you can like leave them file private and, and remove them one at a time. But it was definitely like a, like a little annoying thing that was just like, oh, we do rely on this behavior and this behavior is now gone. So right. what do we do? Yeah. Did you guys have any... We had a few places where we were comparing, uh, I think, optional dates in particular. And yeah. right, we noticed that, that those comparisons were added to our code base in a few places uh, at the file private access level. And uh, I mean, we haven't really worried about that too much yet since the behavior that we were working on is the behavior that uh, that we're expecting at least, right? Yeah. And we assume that the code that was added is pretty much copied out of the previous standard library. So Right. It should continue to work just fine. Right. We're we're not too worried about that. Did you opt to deduplicate those out and have that in your application? Yeah. We or did. are you leaving those? Okay. Yeah. That's a an app and a and a team I no longer work on. Um they're an old client. And so I don't know what they're doing now. But I would like to think that eventually they like kind of work their way out of each of those optional comparison operators and then we're we're eventually able to delete them. Okay. I think yeah. we're we're going to err on the side of not deduplicating those, leaving the like private definition in the file everywhere that it's used, uh, just because that sort of removes the temptation to add more usage of it going forward. Right. 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 In retrospect, that might be the right answer. I I think it probably is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's see. I will. Uh, I, I've been keeping notes from the migration, so just going down the list here. Nice. Uh, yeah, hit me. So some of the methods that used to return optionals will now return empty strings in some cases. Uh, last path component is no longer optional. That'll return an empty string if the path is an empty string, or I guess if it doesn't, if it can't be split into path components. The same thing applies to uh, absolute string, path, and the path components uh, property that would give you an array of path components. 
those are no longer optional. So those would return, uh, I assume, either an empty string or, in the case of path components, an empty array. Right, right. Do you think that's a good change? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's one that we're going to have to to sit on and think about. I, I haven't th- actually thought about that very much. I do think that path components returning a non-optional array makes sense, which I think is something you'll agree with. Well, yeah, and there's always been this question, um, and I've written about it on my blog a couple times, in Swift, of like things that have multiple ways of being empty. So an empty, you know, an optional string can either be nil or it can be an empty array, and they both mean emptiness, and sometimes they mean emptiness in different ways, and so, like, that's important. But, you know, in the case of path components, like, uh, an empty array and a nil array for that, like, is there a semantic difference there? Do each of those mean something something different? Uh, I kind of don't think so. So I think that that change is definitely good. It's definitely easier to work with when it doesn't return an optional. Um, so, you know. Well, it's easier to work with, but you can still run into the behavior that you were getting with optionals before where you're getting right, back a right. nonsensical value, right? You just have to know if that's possible and check for it and handle it. You kind of have to know that the sentinel now, instead of being nil, is an empty array. And if it's an empty array, that means something semantically. Right. And I mean, this is nicer because you might have cases where a URL came from some some hard-coded path or like an NS file manager uh, path that you know is going to be built up of path components. And so now you don't have to deal with unwrapping an optional that you know will never be uh, the none case. Yeah, that's right. As a slight tangent, I do think that one of the ways that this can be solved is if the different types of URL were separated into different actual types. Oh, yeah. So, like, there's no reason that a mail to URL should be represented with the same type as, like, a URL that takes you to a web page. And that shouldn't be the same type as a URL that represents a local file. And the fact that they're all kind of overloaded into this one type called URL means that, well, you know, in some cases, since this could be a mail to URL, we have to handle this thing specially. And now this thing has to return optional where it didn't before and stuff like that. Right. So, I actually have taken a step toward resolving this in our application. Uh, there's, there are a lot of cases in our app where we deal with file URLs specifically, right? And we pass these between, uh, you know, various internal APIs inside the app. And I was writing a lot of code to work with this and noticing that it was really clumsy to like get a URL that I knew was a file URL and deal with uh, in Swift 2.3 unwrapping this optional that I knew would never be optional right. or that I knew would never be nil. And it was really annoying. And so I used, um, have you seen the library called Validated from Ben G? I forget what his last name is. That's, I think that's Benjamin Enks. Yes, that is correct. Uh, I have seen Validated, but yes. So it's a really cool library that uses uh, Swift's um, support for generics to attach uh, basically validators to a type. And so in this case, I defined a validator for a URL called isFileURL. And uh, so now rather than writing APIs that take a a plain old NS URL, I I take in URLs that are wrapped in this sort of validated file URL type. And uh, I also added some syntactic sugar uh, for the methods that I was using uh, that no longer returned optional since I knew that they would never return nil given that the URL they were operating on was a file URL. Right. That's super interesting. I'd never considered using this library like that. I really like that. In our app, it really cleaned up a lot of uh, redundant code and a lot of code that were code paths that we knew were never going to get hit and that were just like, 
if this is nil, then fatal error because this is like an right. application support directory path and it will never like right. the last path component will never be nil. It was basically just to satisfy the the, the type checker that you added the stuff. Right. Um, and you were able to remove that. That's really nice. You should tell Ben about that because that would be a really nice thing for the readme as well, I think. I probably should. And I'll see. It's not like that's it's not very much code and it's not anything that's specific to my company. I'll see if it's something that we could throw up in the, in a gist for the show notes. Yeah, even a gist would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to bring up is have you seen Kyle Fuller's path kit? That sounds vaguely familiar. I don't know that I've actually reviewed it though. It's a little library that gives you a type called path, which just represents the path. And that's like a local file file URL. And it has extra abilities attached to it. So you can do like path.exists instead of having to use NS file or a regular file manager, which, you know, depending on your style, you could take that or leave that. But the idea is basically just instead of using URLs to represent this stuff, you can use paths to represent this stuff. It's a type that really knows like what it is and it's very focused. So it's kind of a similar solution to what you came up with, although slightly less like composed than, than your solution. Okay, cool. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Uh, we can throw that in the show notes. Yeah, all this stuff that we've talked about will be in the show notes, of course, which you can find at fatalerror.fm. Nope, that's a lie. Yeah. Oh, no, you can't because this is Patreon. It'll also be in your podcast listener app, um, so that's a good place to find it. But if you do want the show notes, you have to go to the, the Patreon. So it's patreon.com slash fatalerror and then find the post for episode 12. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'll have to get in the habit of thinking more in this Patreon plus uh, fatal error site. Frame yeah, of mind. that's, that's very, anyway. Let's yeah. uh, let's move on from from this. Uh, I, I will definitely take a look at PathKit, but we have a lot more stuff to go over for Swift three. For sure. On the other hand, we could talk about URLs for another forty five minutes. This work, works for me, you know. Be a really really interesting <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what else did you guys find that was not URL related? Uh, so I've had a couple really like simple things to check for. The migrator tends to change all of your private definitions to file private, which in some cases may be right, and in some cases maybe locking things down even further and changing that back to private will make sense. The file private access level is new in Swift 3, and it means basically what private did in Swift 2 and earlier. That is that something that's private can be accessed anywhere in the file where it's declared. Now, um, that that's the new file private uh, declaration, and they've added a new uh, private access control below file private, and that means that that uh, type is only accessible within the scope where it's declared. Right. And we'll add a link explaining that to the show notes because it's a little bit hairy to talk through here. Yeah, I think that change was really a mistake, and I think they're they've been talking about rolling it back, so that may actually happen. I haven't worked with this quite enough to have a strong opinion on that yet. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. That's definitely one we're going to have to see as Swift 3 shakes out. It's like, is this actually useful or did we just really need yeah. one type one, you know? So in a similar vein, the migrator will also elevate a number of your uh, public types up to being open, or I guess public classes to being open. Open means that it's a class that something outside of your module can subclass and, and can possibly override things. And this is something where you know, previously that would just be any non-final public class in your module would be a class that users of your module can subclass and extend. And now you have to specifically declare that that class can be extended with the open keyword. 
So the migrator will apply that to cases where uh, something's just declared as public. But again, uh, if something was declared public and not public final just as an oversight, you may not want it to become open. So uh, searching your code base for open after the migration is probably going to be a good thing. Right. So anything that is public and not final becomes open. I'm not totally sure if that's true because I didn't see very many opens that got added to the uh, to our code base. That's and odd. So I wonder not... what the rule is then. It could be that and just that most of our things were properly declared as public and final. Right, but right. I'm not totally sure about what the underlying rule is. Yeah, interesting. Interesting, yeah. That's another one to keep looking out for. I mean, I feel like all of the different access levels are just really... They're really extreme now, and it was nicer when it was simpler. I I can kind of see the argument for open, at least more than I can see the argument for file private, although although I understand that. I would just recommend after you run the migration, just search for your code base for the keywords open and file private, because these are new in Swift 3, and so if you see one there, you know the migrator added it, so just look and see if it makes sense in that context, right? Right. That doesn't have to be a, a project that takes a long time. Another thing we noticed is that uh, with notifications, not only has the NS prefix been removed from uh, the notification type, and I think that notification is another of the things that got value semantics. Is that right? I think that's right, yeah. Okay. Notification names are no longer plain old strings, but uh, there's a type notification.name, which is just a type alias for a string. I don't think that it is a type alias for a string. I think it's actually a, a brand new type. Because you have to use raw value to instantiate it. That is true. Hmm. What is it? I swear I dug into it and it was a type alias for a string. That's super odd. Yeah, let me let me check that out. So oh well, while you check that out, I'll I'll keep reviewing. Um so anywhere that you're using uh notification, the migrator will add a like initializing a notification name from a raw value at the point where you use it. And uh right. that is really not correct. Really what you should do is look for those diffs and look for those conversions in your diff and undo them and instead go back to wherever that notification name is declared and change those to be the notification.name type. And then that symbol can continue to be used just normally as you would expect in uh, notification APIs without right. initializing a notification name from a raw value everywhere in your code base. Yeah, and if you just put the dot in front of it, it'll like autofill all of the like potential things it could be, and you'll get autocomplete. You'll get everything. Yeah. It's really so nice. um, the situation with notification.name is very weird because in Objective C, it is a type alias for a string, but something happened in Swift three where like there are things that are kind of enum esque, but they're actually strings under the hood. Oh, that's like, right. We're talking about the NS extensible string enum thing that you can attach in a, right? Right. And so, yeah. And so that becomes notification.name. And then that's, since that's now, when you import it into Swift, it becomes its own type. And so it's actually a struct. It's not a string. Um, that it's raw representable and um, with like a string backing type. And uh, so that's the thing that you're extending and that you're adding the extra, like, static values to. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. The weird thing about the notification changes is notification center lost its NS prefix, which is fine. That makes sense because it seems like anything that lost its NS prefix is, like, necessary for working with things on 
Linux, right? But then NS notification didn't lose its NS prefix, and it's still a class well, in so Swift. Well, so NS notification is still around, but there's also a notification type in Swift. Let's see if I can find that. Is it for use with NS notification center? Yeah, it is. It's the same, like, so like with data, like NS data still exists as a right. reference type, but uh, data is a, a like value type that's bridged over to NS data. It's the same right. situation with notification and NS notification. Oh, okay. Yeah, my bad. I was just looking in the wrong place. There is a struct called notification right. with no NS. Yeah. NS notification. I don't know. It's weird. So, so you can just use notification center with regular notifications? You're going to have to be more specific. Do you mean you can use notification center, no NS prefix with right. regular notifications? No NS prefix. Yeah. Oh, I guess we just screwed that up. Or at least... so you, But you can still use it with the NS prefix, which is not true for NS, for NS notifications. You have to drop the NS. Maybe. I think I, think yeah, I changed everything I encountered to plain old notification, no NS prefix, and notification center, no NS prefix. Right. And all the tests around that are passing, so I think it's right, but I don't know if you want to intermix the two how it works. Right, so so it is right. It's just that the other way, if you wanted to add NS prefixes to everything, you can't do because there is no NS notification center anymore. It's only notification center. Gotcha. But okay. NS notification does exist. This is really confusing. Yeah, I don't such, know such why a clear language. Like yeah, I don't know. I guess it's the same as the NS data data thing and the NS string string thing, but it's very confusing to me. Right. I think the takeaway here is use notification center with no NS because uh, the NS notification center no longer exists in Swift 3. Right. Use the plain yeah. old notification type if you want value semantics, which you pretty yeah. much always do, I think, especially with yeah. notifications. Yep. And are, now, are notifications, NS notifications mutable? I was wondering this while we were talking about it as well. I don't know if I've ever mutated, and I don't think so. Seems I think like you, you shouldn't be able to mutate it. Let me look at the original source. I don't think you ever... Read-only, object, read-only, NS dictionary, copy, the name, read-only. Yeah, it's, it's read-only. I don't, so, I don't think you ever create a notification. You tell a notification center how to create one, right? Um, yeah, I think that's... No, there is an initializer. You can init with name, object, user info... But um, once you init it, you can't change it. So it basically does have value semantics in the fact that it's immutable. Okay. Um, so yeah, basically the rule is drop NS anywhere you can. Unless you're doing something really, really weird, like using associated don't do objects that are really weird, to weird. attach something to an no notification, then you yikes. still need reference semantics. Double yikes. Yeah, you will. Please I, don't I do did that. that once. It was a whole thing. <laughs> I'm sure you had a good reason. It was in Objective-C, too. Yeah. Okay, so NS certification is super weird. It is super weird, but maybe not as weird as we initially thought. Right. Apologies to you, our listener, for uh, having to deal with that. Um, <laughs> that was a crazy roundabout. The worn unused result annotation, which you could apply to a function or method that returns something that like really shouldn't be ignored, that's gone now because that's the default. Mm -hmm. uh, in Swift 3, what you have to do is annotate a function or method that returns something that can be ignored. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. So instead of warning when the result is unused, you warn when it's intended to be unused. So you, you flip it. Uh, you mean instead of annotating, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Right. So it's it's just exactly flipped around. The thinking being that, like... By default, something that returns a value probably doesn't mean for you to throw that value away. 
And like right. sometimes it does, but that's probably the special case, not right. like uh, not the former. That's one of those changes that I thought I might be annoyed by, but it seems to be fine in practice. Super on board with it. Yeah. It's called the discardable result in Swift 3 now. Right, right. Yeah. So one uh, one thing that I've caught there is that if you have SwiftLint set up to warn you about having like more than one line of vertical white space, warn unused result uh, will like go away. The migrator will take the warn unused result annotation away, but leave the line that it was on. So you can end up with an extra empty line there between your documentation and your methods declaration. Oh, that's super weird. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit weird. And SwiftLint might warn you about that. Or if there was no documentation attached to that method, you'll end up with multiple lines of white space and SwiftLint will give you a nice little warning there. Uh, right. And that's something that's obviously not critical, but it's something to be aware of. Right, right. We found that if you have um, code with the, that uses the word uh, extension or default or other keywords, particularly if they're uh, enumeration cases, those get converted to a lowercase, right? And so the migrator will go through and try to convert your default enumeration case to lowercase everywhere. And then uh, because that's a keyword, it'll add backticks around it wherever it uh, it adds that. And right. in a lot of cases, that's not necessary. It doesn't hurt anything, but uh, it can be a little bit, just a little bit weird to read or disconcerting to come across. And so in many cases, those backticks that the migrator adds can be removed. Interesting. I wish I knew when you needed the backticks and when you don't. If you get a compiler error because something's reserved, then you need the backticks. Right. <laughs> but I feel like there was. A, I wish there was a way to know before I wrote the code. Eh. Yeah. I I don't know offhand. That seems like something that could actually change between compiler versions, right? Depending yeah. on how it's parsing. Right. Hmm. Maybe the backticks should. Well, whatever. I think it's probably safe to take the backticks away, but... It's probably safe to take them away, but it's also completely not necessary. It's a nitpicky, styly thing, right? Right. And it does, it does look kind of weird when there's backticks in there. Yeah, it does. I think that's really the bulk of um, of what we've noticed. Uh, oh, there is a potential pitfall when dealing with method names that changed in Objective-C protocols that have optional methods. Oh, yeah, this one's brutal. And we're going to put a link to a blog post about this in the show notes rather than having me try to uh, try to go into detail here. The gist is that if you've implemented a method that's an optional method from an Objective-C protocol, then its name could change and the compiler wouldn't freak out because that method's optional, right? Right. And so if the migrator changed the name in a way that uh, the like doesn't match up with the protocol's definition anymore... Or if the way that protocol's definition changes, because Swift 3 changes how things get imported from Objective-C into Swift, but it misses changing like that method as declared in your code base, right. then it'll be like your object no longer like conforms to that protocol or it contains that method from that protocol. And so right. that's and you won't be warned. And you won't be warned about it. Right. And so that's something to really look out for. And as I said, this is a difficult thing to explain verbally, and we'll put a blog post about it in the show notes. Yeah, it's definitely super insidious because there's no way to know that it's failing except to like actually just test your whole app. Um, especially like I think table view uh, protocols are especially prone to this. Right. So stay woke, people. And speaking of testing your whole app, 
This sort of thing is a case where having te unit tests covering a good portion of your app really comes in handy. We have something like 68 or 69% uh, code coverage in our application target right now. Man, that is crazy. That's so many percent. It's a lot of percent. And I, I am so thankful because otherwise I do not know how I would have confidence in the result of this migration. I, I mean, I guess I would review things carefully and uh, and hope and pray, but having good test coverage has given me so much more confidence in, in performing this migration. For sure. We had maybe like 15 tests, maybe 20, like not a lot of tests at all. And like four of them caught something. And it's like, Imagine what I the wish tests we had more tests. Right have caught. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's crazy. So, write the tests, people. Yeah. Write the tests. Did you ha do you have any custom collections in your code base? Offhand, I do not think that we did. Um, you'll know because you have to add an extra method <laughs> because so like let's say you have something like API error collection and it's just like something that you want to act as a collection or an array basically, but it, like it maybe has an array and you want to act as an array. Um, so you can map over it or like or like get things from indexes or whatever. In Swift 3, you now have to implement another method called uh, index after on the collection itself. Um, so like we had a little bit of trouble with that and making sure that like all of our conformances were, were still good there. Um, that was one little thing we ran into. And we ran into one other little thing that I can't quite explain, but basically <laughs> NS coding acted really goofy. Somebody else fixed this bug, so I, I don't know the details. Shout out to Brian Michelle. I remember the fix, but I don't remember why the fix was was happening. The the comment says decoded double from a key to archive regardless of what Swift version was running. And there's a there's a what? Stack Overflow thread. It's very weird. It's like if you have a double, you first have to check like decode objects for key, and then you have to check decode double for key. So if you have NS coding in your app. That's a really, really good place where you can just throw some tests down because it's super easy to just convert something mm -hmm. to data and then back again and just verify that all the properties are equal. And that's how we caught these. Uh, and we knew that something was wrong. It took us a while to figure out what exactly was wrong. But um, I would check your NS codings as well if you have any of those. Please throw that Stack Overflow article into the show notes. That That uh, is a great idea. That definitely sounds like something that we do have fairly good test coverage around, but certainly bears checking manually. Let me pop that in the show notes. Cool. And I don't think that I really have anything else to add here. Um, so I do have one question for you, kind of a broader, higher level thing, is what do you think of this migration in general? Do you think Apple did the right thing with all the, the, the stuff that they changed? Do you think they could have written better migrations? Do you think that like it could should have been spread out over time or it was good that it was like smashed up into one big migration. What's your, what's your general feeling about the fact that our entire industry just went through like a giant upheaval in this, in this migration? That's a, that's a big question. I'll try to take that in parts. Uh, I'll take the last, the last part of the question first. I think in the grand scheme of things, this is kind of painful, but it's not really that huge of a, like, it's not that huge of a change for the industry. Like, t let's take a step back and realize that what's happened is we have some new uh, value types where previously we had reference types, and we have some new naming conventions that we think we like better in the long term, right? Right, right. So it's definitely a painful conversion. I, I don't know that it's necessarily a really, really, really big deal in the long term, right? I mean, it's it's hard to say what the added cost of it is of just like... 
you know, my fear is not all apps have moved over to object or uh, moved over to Swift, which is true. I think it's only like eleven percent of top apps or something like that. But it's a big chunk of people, and it's a big chunk of time, and it's very disruptive. Like you had people working over their Christmas breaks. Like it wasn't nothing. It wasn't just, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, to be to be clear, for for my company, we had didn't have people working over their Christmas breaks. People who decided not to take time off uh, in the, uh, in okay, that week. Gotcha. Uh, right. <laughs> um, yeah, I wasn't we're, trying we're to like that impugn. Bad. Right, I wasn't trying to impugn anybody, and I know people who who did do that. They said like, I'll take two extra vacation days. I'll work over Christmas. The company will give me two extra vacation days elsewhere just so I can do this migration when nobody else is working so that our, you know, our merges yeah. are not totally crazy. Right, yeah. That, that is one thing. You pretty much have to freeze all future development while this conversion is going on. Yeah. Like, uh, let's see, other, other parts of the question. I do think that if you take as given that all of these changes in naming conventions, et cetera, were going to happen, I think that putting them together in one big go is probably a good thing. Although I'll temper that by saying that I maybe would have liked to see the purely naming changes separated out from changes that are like semantic changes, right? Value versus right. reference semantics. Cause it's easy and for like those collections changed. Several things changed like right. know, a deeper level. Yeah. In a deeper way. Right. It would have been nice to, uh, to not have those things that change it in a deeper way and in a more like semantic, like behavioral way. Uh, right. It would be nice if those hadn't gotten lost in the more mundane, like um, uh, parameter naming or uh, like first parameter naming changes. Right. Yeah, uh, for sure. And there's like a bunch of changes around any, which are really subtle and like, I couldn't even explain, but any is basically the thing you use instead of any object. Now in a lot of cases, it's right. very weird. There's a bunch of stuff like that that's like not purely naming, like actually really changes how the language works at a fundamental level. Right. And I, I guess I, I could see an argument for separating the naming stuff out from those more meaningful changes. Right. Um, that obviously, as I said, is taken as given that these changes were happen like would happen at all. And I, I do feel like Swift is going in a positive direction here. So I'm I'm happy to accept that as a given for that argument, right? Yeah. And uh, what was the first part of your question? Oh, could Apple have done a better job providing migration tooling? So with a caveat that I was not the person who uh, sort of ran the migrator on our on the largest part of our code base and spent a couple days like getting it all to build and uh, and for and getting tests to pass so that the rest of us could sort of come in and clean up and look for uh, other problems and really go over most of the app with a fine tooth comb. Right. Uh, I know that he mentioned that the migrator would catch new things and migrate new things the second and third times that you ran it on the same code base. And that really seems pretty unfortunate. So the migrator also would try to change your enumeration cases to like be a lowercase first letter instead of uppercase, which was the convention earlier. But in a number of cases where those cases were used, it missed uh, changing the first letter lo to lowercase. And so that was something that we had to go in and do manually in a number of right. places. And so I do think that the tooling for performing this migration could be better. Uh, obviously, it's difficult to... Uh, you can't really write a tool that will convert things from uh, reference semantics to value semantics everywhere with 100% correctness. But like effectively performing a search and replace across a code base for an enumeration case should be should be fairly straightforward. Yeah, that shouldn't break, you know. I mean, I get that it's 
it's complicated. It's not as simple as doing a search and replace. But uh, e even so, that's the sort of thing that should be performed completely automatically. I had heard that the that the migrator is pretty much running, like is is performing string processing on source files and isn't uh, isn't working from the AST uh, to sort of augment its knowledge of the I source files. I would believe files, that. I would definitely believe which that. Which seems right based on what I've seen. Uh, I do wonder if there would be room. It's probably not worth it from Apple's perspective, but it, I, I do wonder if there would be room to provide a sort of like parser augmented migrator, that, so you could at least, uh, well, I guess parser and like first the, the first couple steps of compiling, just because it seems like having some more semantic knowledge about the code that you're migrating would be really useful. Yeah, there were definitely some cases where we had something that like I saw what the migrator was trying to do in its replacement of text, but it like came out super garbled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to cut Apple too much slack here. They're they're a giant company. They should be able to do this well. But like, on some level, I feel like Swift was a victim of its own success, where they kind of put this thing in the world, and they were like, okay, well, like we made this thing, we're really still figuring it out. Like, use it, please, but also, you know, use it at your own risk. Like, we are going to change it, and then it became this wildly successful thing that that everybody felt like they had to be using, and. Because of that, like, there's so much serious, heavy production code that's written in it that just, like, there's just no, there's no nice way to get from that 2.2 state to the 2.3, to the 3.0 state that they wanted to be in without just, like, going through, as they say, like, the only way out is through. Like, right. there's nothing else you can do. And if it had been less successful and it was maybe just a bunch of side projects, it could have been a little bit easier. But, yeah, I don't know. It's a, this is a tough they had a tough problem on their hands. And yeah. it's really frustrating because, like, I mean, migration code. Like, have you ever written migration code for a database or something that you write to on disk? It's, like, the most boring kind of code because you know it's going to run once and never be run again. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, I wish I could just delete but this. But it better database, run but right. Can't. Yeah, but it better run right. And people will be mad if it, if it ruins their data. So, I mean, you know, thank God for source control. Thank God for statically typed languages. Yep. Um those someone, things made this a lot easier. I forget who someone posted in Slack, uh, God save the compiler while we were doing <laughs> this. Yeah, that that yeah. and and automated testing I think were really useful in this in this project. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I it's, it was a, it was an interesting thing. I'm glad I'm kind of done with it. I'm not you know, I don't envy people who still have to do it. I'm glad y'all are done with it. But kind I think it kinda had to happen and there's just no other way. Yep. As unfortunate as that is. And in the grand scheme of things, it's not that unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, I just think about all the git bisects that we can no longer do. Yeah, that is true. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that is really unfortunate. So, and just old code that, like, if you want to pull up an old project somebody wrote, uh, or just a sample code or something, it's just like, now you have to migrate it before you can use it. And that might be trivial, but it might not, you know? Yeah. Just, there is a cost to these things. Yeah, I hope they. I hope there's never one that's as bad as this. I think that was sort of the idea: was rip off the bandaid now, and any future yeah. source breaking changes should be very small. Yeah, exactly, and and really well, like well, well reasoned and well defended and stuff. Has to be for a really good reason. Yeah, I think that these yeah. like, I, I don't want to say that these changes were not well reasoned and well defended, right? Some of them were real forced, I thought, but. You know, yeah. I don't think they made the migration much worse than it was already. I think that's that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, this one's going kind of long. Yeah, we should. Uh, anything else? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think I have anything else to add. And yeah, I guess we're going a little bit long. 
thank you to everybody who's listened through this episode. Uh, I hope it's been at least somewhat useful. Yeah, or maybe a little cathartic knowing that, you know, we, we, we suffered the same way you suffered. Right, you're not alone. <laughs> yeah, and thanks again to the Patreon listeners. It really means a lot that y'all have been supporting the show. So Yeah, thank you so much for your support, and we will talk to you uh, next week with a public episode.